Very good. Thank you for that hymn. That hymn is a tremendous blessing to my heart. So thank you for singing it. It is a subject we'd like to talk about today from 1 Peter. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing to be here in... It seems like I've met quite a number of you, young people here, who, whose older siblings I went to Bible school with and spent time with 15, 18 years ago. And so it's a blessing to be here this week, and I'm enjoying and appreciating that very much. Also, there are several men here sitting behind you that our mentors to me have been and continue to, their teaching and preaching and lives continue to be mentors um, and have influenced me over the years. And so it's interesting to be here in that sense as well. It says in 1 Corinthians 4, I believe it is, verse 7 maybe, that we have nothing that we have not received. And I can certainly certainly say that. I have nothing that I haven't received, either from God. And I have received a tremendous amount of blessings and teachings and counsel and encouragement and direction through other men. That's a blessing. That's part of the beauty of God's church. And it's a good thing. Okay, let's open with a word of prayer. We'll just bow together, Father. We bow before you this afternoon and ask, Lord, that you would be magnified in our midst and that your holy word would be honored and that your spirit would minister and edify each of our hearts. Lord, my prayer is that this time this afternoon we could bow and sit in worship at the feet of Jesus. So let it be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're trying to look at 1 Peter. We are not going to make it through 1 Peter, I don't think. We'll have to speed things up. We didn't, we're not going to get as far today as I had thought we would. So I don't want to... We have this saying at home, um, I don't want you all to have to suffer the word of exhortation. (laughs) We don't want to belabor points too long to where you're suffering those words of exhortation. And we don't want to wear out the saints either. But we do want to try to be faithful to what God gives us. We title this series, Called Unto God's Eternal Glory. And the subtitle for today is, As a Spiritual House. Okay, before we turn to 1 Peter, or maybe you're there, but before we turn there, let's turn to Matthew chapter 16 here and read a passage. This is a snapshot from the life of Peter when he was with the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Read down through verse 20. So, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? 
And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And so here's the question. Uh, he asks it initially, and it seems like there's a response from uh, maybe several of the disciples there. But he asks them more pointedly, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered. Now it's interesting, I, I think... Each of the gospel records has the, a list of the 12 apostles. This is just for information. It's not really that edifying. But I believe in each one of those lists, Simon Peter is, is named first, and Judas Iscariot is named last. And it's just interesting that it is that way. I think there's something in that. But Peter was kind of a spokesman for the 12. Plus, it didn't seem like he usually hesitated to speak up. But he's the one that answered, and he gave a good answer here. Verse 16, notice the passion in the truth of his answer. He was convinced. Amen? We need to be convinced. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It's a good answer. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So here we have this very revelation was brought to, Jesus is saying, this revelation of who I am was given to you by that eternal one. He saw something of the unseen here. Not every person saw Jesus Christ as the Messiah, but the fact that Peter could, he was seeing in through the unseen. And he says, my father, the eternal one, has revealed this to you. Verse 18, he goes on here now and says, And I say unto you, unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. So in this account here, you have uh, verse 18. Jesus said, you are Peter. And that word in the Greek means Petros. And then he says, upon this rock, which in the Greek is Petra. Now, uh, Vine says that... uh, Petra, or the rock here, denotes a mass of rock as distinct from, from Petros, which is a detached stone or boulder, or a stone that might be thrown or easily moved. Uh, one example of Petra, which is a mass of rock, is in Matthew 27, where it says, Jesus was laid in a new tomb, which was hewn out in the rock. It was hewn out of a rock, Petra, so it's a mass of rock. And he says, you are Peter, you are Petros, you are a stone, or a smaller stone, or a boulder, and upon this rock, I will build my church, upon this Petra, upon this massive rock. And you know, as we look at church history, there has been a lot of discussion, and maybe even some major error came into Christendom through what Jesus meant in this verse. But you know, I really feel, I really believe we're going to look at a passage in 1 Peter, and maybe that's why he wrote it in this letter. 
But if you take 1 Peter 2, what we want to look at today, it clearly shows us what Jesus meant in this passage. So we'd like to try to do that. It's not that confusing. He's not saying that Peter is going to be uh, the rock, so so to speak, but Peter is a stone. We'll see it as we go through here. Now, I think you're probably all familiar, and I hesitated whether or not we should turn to this, but you're all familiar. I, I just like to lay the foundation so we connect it together in our minds. But I want to at least mention it. In Daniel chapter 2, um, you're familiar with the, Im- the dream there that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had, and this image was there in front of him that represented different world uh, kingdoms, worldly kingdoms. And then it says that there was... A stone was hewn out of the mountain. You're with me, right? You remember the account in Daniel chapter 2? There was a stone that was hewn out of the mountain, and that stone struck the feet of the image. And the image disappeared, and this stone became a mountain and filled the whole earth. So what was that prophecy, briefly? What was the stone that was hewed out of the mountain? Christ. What was the mountain that filled the earth? His kingdom. So there you have another example. Now, young people, here this afternoon, I wonder, I wonder what goes through your mind when you think of the church. Can I even say that? Do you cringe a little? I hope not. But what goes through your mind when you think of the church? Some of us here may have been hurt in our church experience. And we may have even lost heart in the church. Maybe you've been discouraged and you feel like you're ready to give up on the church. I'm sorry if you feel that way. I'm not here to criticize or condemn you. And I'm sorry if you feel that way. And I'm very sorry if you've been hurt. And I'm sorry if you've lost confidence. And I'm very sorry if other Christians have disappointed you. One of the most painful things to me was when a young person in our congregation felt like I hurt them or just simply was, they didn't feel like I hurt them. It definitely wasn't intentional, but just felt like they were overlooked or not cared for. That, that hurt me. I apologized. I repented for that. But you know, people do disappoint us and people hurt us. Even we don't mean to, but we do. And I don't know how you're feeling here. This afternoon, maybe you're here in that situation, or maybe you're like a young man who came to me after I tried to preach about God's heart for a corporate expression of Christianity in local communities, the church, and how that it's God's heart to have a corporate expression of his grace and salvation. He came to me afterwards, and he just said, you know, I've never seen the church like that. I've always just looked at the church as kind of an option. I think that's the word he used. And I've kind of just seen it as, this is an option in my life. You know, I could relate to that, because that's exactly where I was for years. I thought, you know, the church is good, the church is, the church is important, but I just saw it as kind of almost a byproduct And this is kind of something we do. It's kind of an option in my life. It's a good thing, but that's how I saw it. Until God uh, began to work in my heart on this subject. 
There's an Anabaptist that's quoted sometimes, and he says this, No man is saved apart from his brother. Now, that doesn't mean that individual salvation or salvation for the individual is not important. That is the only entrance into the kingdom of God. But what he meant by that statement, I believe, is that salvation is a corporate, I'm sorry, salvation has a corporate element to it. Salvation has a corporate experience to it. Let me try to explain this. When sin entered into the world in Genesis 3, this relationship between God and man was severed. So there was a problem there. It was broken. But what happened in Genesis 4? Sin entered into the world. Genesis 3, man's relationship with God is severed. What happened in Genesis 4? Just the, the thing, what you think of of Genesis 4. Anyone? Okay. Yes, thank you, Daniel. That was when Cain slew his brother Abel. So we see that when sin entered into the world, it severed this relationship between men and God. The ne- immediately following that, we see that it, it created broken relationships. I mean, not just broken relationship. Cain killed his brother. That's pretty bad. So sin, the universe, the way it was initially created was perfect. Good, God said. And in that universe, everything was in harmony, in unity, in oneness. It's how God created it. It just flowed that way. Well, sin entered into that world, and sin brought disharmony, disunity, destruction, devastation, and death. Sin brought broken relationships galore. I mean, just today, I want you to think for just a moment. We can't. We can't even get close to wrapping our minds around this. But think for a moment, just today, across the world of, what, 8 billion some people, how many tears will be shed today because of broken relationships? Divorce. Children. Mom and dad just separated today. Broken hearts and broken relationships because of sin. That's what sin did. So, someone, I think it might have been Chester Weaver, like I said, everything I know or learned, I've learned from others. But I think he calls this the Lucifer principle, and that is simply independence, selfishness, and individualism. So, what happened is the spirit, Luther, or the spirit from Satan came into humanity and made us independent, individualistic, and it, that sin affects, and selfish, majorly, and that affects those relationships. Now, my favorite, my favorite verse, one, I shouldn't say it that way, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, it's actually the, the second half of a verse found in 1 John 3, 8. I'll read it to you. And it says this. It says, for this is the purpose of the Son of God. I'm sorry, this is the purpose the Son of God was manifested. This is the purpose that the Son of God was revealed And manifested. This is the purpose. That he might destroy the works of the devil. So in that, I'm submitting to you that salvation, salvation restores this relationship to God. But salvation should also have this effect. And it should be realized in bringing people together in unity and oneness and harmony. Shouldn't it? I actually believe that's part of salvation. And if you think that's too strong, I'm sorry. But I think 
the salvaging effect, the, the works that Jesus Christ came to destroy is that disintegrating work of Satan that breaks relationships and brings hatred and envy and bitterness into the hearts of men and women towards each other. And he, Jesus came to destroy that and to set up his church or the kingdom here on earth that would once again, as you've heard already this morning, live out God's original purpose for humanity. I'll give you one verse to emphasize this. And here, I'm, John D. probably accused me of being a theologian, picking a verse out here, but we'll just do that. <laughs> uh, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. It's actually two verses in Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. And this is in the middle of a sentence. It's a long sentence, but I'm going to break in here. Have it, I'm just acknowledging that. Verse 9, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure. Okay, so this is saying God has revealed to us the mystery of his will. His will is pretty important. That according to his good pleasure, so it's his will and it's his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. This is something that God has purposed. This is what will happen. This will be. Verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now, I understand that's the reality. The complete reality of that will not be realized until Christ returns. But I believe that the church is now to be the beginning, at least, of this reality of what is to come. And I believe that is the work. That's part of the salvation. It's right in this passage, but that's part of the salvation. Jesus Christ came to bring, to destroy the works of the devil, was to bring his church into unity and oneness. Now, I'm not, trying, I'm not promoting ecumenicalism there, where we all have to look at, join the same church and all those things. But I'm calling us to this reality that our local congregations, at least our local churches, could be an expression of what God wants to bring into a greater reality when Christ returns. I believe it's part of salvation. All right, let's turn to 1 Peter 2. And we'll read this passage. Now, there were some people who were kind enough to draw a picture because I'm not an artist. So I appreciate that. Will this sit up? I don't think it will, will it? Can you all see that? Okay. Let's look at 1 Peter <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 4. And here again, I'm kind of breaking in here, but we stopped at verse 3 yesterday. Speaking of the Lord here, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, 
being disobedient, whereunto they also they were also appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So we're going to try to look at this passage here this afternoon. <clears throat> the first thing we want to look at, so we're talking about, we're called unto God's eternal glory, yes, through, through a salvation that affects us individually, no doubt about it. But we are called to God's eternal glory as a spiritual house. There's a corporate expression of that as well. Let's look at the chief cornerstone first. Let's notice, <clears throat> let's talk about this chief cornerstone in here. Several points we want to look at. Several years ago in Fort, in Fort Wayne, which is the largest city close to us, around the west bypass of Fort Wayne there, along I-69, they, they went about and they built an, a new motel. Or maybe it's a hotel. I get them mixed up. Anyway, it had several, multiple stories high. And they built this big building there. And it was coming along. And you'd drive past occasionally. And you'd see the progress being made. And sometime, I don't remember exactly where the progress was of that. But all of a sudden, the progress stopped. And they quit building it. And time went by. And then pretty soon I heard that what happened, the reason they stopped building this motel was... One corner of that motel had went down into the ground six feet. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't going to work. So they were, this thing was a big building. And all of a sudden, one corner pushed down. So they didn't do their homework. They didn't do something right. And someone ended up with a lawsuit and paying a lot of money. I don't know what all happened there, but that building couldn't go on being built like that. Now, the foundation, I'm not a builder. I told you that already. I told you I'm a fisherman. The foundation on which the building is built is very important. I do know that. The other thing about a foundation is that it's usually unseen. That's an interesting thought. But let's notice a few things here about this cornerstone, Jesus Christ. The first thing we see here is that it's a living cornerstone. <clears throat> we read yesterday in John 5. I'll just read these verses. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. It's a living cornerstone. This cornerstone in which this spiritual house is built upon is a living cornerstone, and it provides life for the rest of the house. For they that shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given the Son to have life in himself. You know, we, uh, the gospel came to make bad men and women better as a byproduct. The gospel came to make dead men and women alive. Because we are dead in trespasses and sins until we're quickened by the Spirit. But this is a, a living cornerstone. First John 5, 11 and 12 says, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that, hath the life, he that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. The first thing we're looking at is this cornerstone is a living cornerstone. And you can see it on the picture. They have this cornerstone drawn in here in the corner of this house. <clears throat> but that cornerstone is a living cornerstone, and it provides life. 
for the whole, the whole building. Let's look next. Let's notice that this cornerstone is chosen of God. I have too many scriptures here, and I don't want to just, uh, I don't want to take too much time this afternoon. I know that you're probably, you're getting tired maybe, and you all might have plans this evening. I don't want that to be a challenge. But I, let's turn to this one. It says this about this cornerstone, that it's chosen of God and elect. Chosen of God and elect. Let's turn to Isaiah 42. <clears throat> so this cornerstone is a living cornerstone, and this cornerstone is chosen of God. It says that multiple times in the text that we're looking at here today in, in uh, 2 Peter, or 1 Peter 2, it says multiple times in this text that this cornerstone was put there by God. It was chosen by God, and it's an elect cornerstone. We see it here in Isaiah 42. Now, if you read through the book of Isaiah, he writes some about his servant. He says, my servant. And sometimes he means Israel's a nation, and then sometimes he means the Messiah that was coming. And in this passage, he means the cornerstone that we're talking about, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, he's my chosen one, in whom my soul delighteth. You see that? God loves this cornerstone. He loves this elect servant. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. And then he says some beautiful things about this servant, this elect servant that he was bringing or sending, this Messiah. It is so precious. He says, a bruised reed shall he not break. That is a blessing to me. The Lord Jesus Christ, he could take this reed that was bent over and you and I would just come along. We would see this reed. You and I would probably just go like that. But Jesus doesn't do that. He takes that reed which is an example of a hurting person, a needy person, and he takes that reed and he, he, he builds it up and he restores it. And smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. I'm glad that he's that way. I'm thankful. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. We could read on there, but there we see it. He is elect. He's chosen of God. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 here. We're still talking about the fact that this cornerstone was put there, was chosen by God. <clears throat> Colossians 1 verse 18. In verses 15 through 17 in Colossians 1, he's talking about all things were created by him and for him. And it's ascribing to Jesus Christ the wisdom, not only the wisdom, you know, my boys have some interesting imaginations and what they come up with, especially my one son, it's a blessing. But this passage is saying that for Jesus Christ, didn't, he didn't just come up with the idea to create a universe, he had the power to do it. And not only did he have the power to create a universe, he's holding it all together. That's what verse 16 says. Now, going on to verse 18, so he is the creator and the sustainer of this universe that he initially created. Verse 18 says, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the new creation as well. Both of the creations are, have their origin in him. The initial creation of the universe and the creation, the new creation, the church. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. God has purposed that Jesus Christ will have all the preeminence. And that in him should all fullness dwell. When God looked around for a cornerstone on which to build his spiritual house, he found in the Lord Jesus Christ a vast capacity to not only retain his grace, but to be a channel of his grace into the lives of men and women. All fullness in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus Christ that God's eternal purposes and will will be realized. We can hear his voice as he says, it's quoted for us, I came to do thy will, O God, chosen of God. Okay, let's go back to second, uh, First Peter 2 here. This cornerstone is precious. It's dear. It's highly valued. It's precious to God. And I can't, but I can only imagine that while Peter's writing this letter, actually he didn't write it, he was dictating it to Sylvanus. But while he's doing that, he's reflecting, he's remembering the baptism of Jesus Christ, but especially the Mount of Transfiguration. And he's there on the mountain. The, the cloud came down, and Jesus is transfigured before them. And this cloud came down, and he heard the voice of God, the Eternal One speaking, saying, This is my beloved Son. And beloved there simply means greatly loved. He is precious. And this passage tells us that he is chosen of God and precious in verse 4. It says again that he is precious in verse 6. This is important. This is close to the heart of God. This is a side note, but who can tell me where the first reference of love in the whole Bible? This is a side little, just take a little breather from our text. Where's the first reference of love in the Bible? Do any of you know in the back? Well, the first reference of love in the Bible is in Genesis 22, where God told Abraham, Take your son, thine only son whom thou lovest. So love is introduced into the Bible with the love of a father to his son. The first reference of love in the New Testament, in Matthew, is when Jesus was baptized. This is my beloved son. The first reference in Mark is at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son. The first reference in Luke, guess what? It's at the baptism. This is my beloved son. And in John, the first reference of love in the Gospel of John is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Precious. Precious. Jesus Christ is precious to God, this cornerstone. It says in this text that he is precious to us who believe. I trust that's the case. I hope he is highly valued and worshipped by us, his people. The Martyr's Mirror, page 106 and 107, has the account there of Ignatius. And it just says this, As Ignatius was led away from the presence of the Senate to the innermost enclosure or pit of the lions. So he's on his way to to the lions. He frequently repeated the name of Jesus in the conversation which he, while on the way, carried on with the believers as well as in his secret prayer to God. So he's mentioning the name of Jesus frequently in his conversation and his prayers while he's on the way to the lions. 
being asked why he did so, he replied this. This is what he said. My dear Jesus, my Savior, is so deeply written in my heart that I feel confident that if my heart were to be cut open and chopped into pieces, the name of Jesus would be found written on every piece. I think Jesus Christ was precious to him. The chief cornerstone is solid and sure. We see it here. Verse 6. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. It says this in Isaiah 28. I'm not going to say much about it, but it's a solid, sure foundation. Isaiah 28, 16 says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion. That's where this is quoting, uh, quoted from. I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. It's a tried stone. In other words, it's a proven stone. It's a precious cornerstone. It's a sure foundation. And he that believeth shall not make haste. He won't be confounded. It's a solid and sure cornerstone. This cornerstone was disallowed of men. Disallowed, it says it multiple times in this passage. That means disapproved. It was repudiated. It was rejected of men. It was a stone of stumbling. This cornerstone that was precious to God and is precious to those that believe, this stone was disallowed of men. It was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Let's just turn uh, to Romans 9 briefly here. Romans chapter 9 verse 30. We want to just look at this. This cornerstone was a stone of stumbling. Romans 9 verse 30. What shall we then say? I'll wait till you get there. What shall we then say? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Now, I want to make it clear here. The Bible, in Romans especially, makes it clear the law was not the problem. It was what they did with the law. The law was good and right and, I think it even says, spiritual and holy. But, it, but that, it does say that. They followed after the law of righteousness. They, that law became their focus, and they looked to that law to provide them righteousness. Verse 32, wherefore, and they did not attain to righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone in a rock of offense, And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, shall not be confounded. So this is saying that the problem with the nation of Israel was they stumbled over this stumbling stone because of unbelief. They could not see him that was invisible. And they kept stumbling over that. They kept stumbling over that. And stumbling over that stumbling stone. And you know, people today still stumble over this stumbling stone. People still stumble over the foundation stone. It says in Romans 10, um, 21, But to Israel, God says, All day long have I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. And it's just saying that God saying, I stretched out my hands to you all day long. And you kept stumbling over the stumbling stone. And through the Old Testament, they just, they kept stumbling over it. They kept stumbling over that stumbling stone. 
He was there. And some of them believed. But many of them were blinded because of their unbelief. I have a little poem here that blessed me. I find my Lord in the Bible wherever I chance to look. He is the theme of the Bible, the center and heart of the book. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the lily fair. Wherever I open my Bible, the Lord of the Bible is there. He, at the book's beginning, gave to the earth its form. He is the ark of shelter, bearing the brunt of the storm, the burning bush of the desert, the budding of Aaron's rod. Wherever I look in the Bible, I see the Son of God. The ram upon Mount Moriah, the ladder from earth to sky, the scarlet cord in the window, the serpent lifted high, the shepherd with staff and crook, I'm sorry, the serpent lifted high, the smitten rock in the desert, the shepherd with staff and crook, the face of my Lord I discover wherever I open the book. He is the seed of the woman, the Savior, virgin born. He's the son of David, whom men rejected with scorn. His garments of grace and beauty, the stately air, the stately air and deck. He is, yet he is priest forever, for he is Melchizedek. He's Lord of eternal glory, whom John in a vision saw, light of the golden city, lamb without spot or flaw, bridegroom coming at midnight, for whom the virgins look. Wherever I open my Bible, I find my Lord in the book. And he was there, young people. He was there. And they stumbled and they stumbled and they stumbled because they didn't believe. But he was there and they rejected when they nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. That was simply the ultimate conclusion of the rejection all through the centuries. That was the final rejection that they had been rejected him all those years. Remember on the Emmaus Road, those two disciples are walking there. And Jesus came and walked with them. And it says, beginning at Moses, he preached, he spoke to them. All through the Old Testament about himself. That must have been quite a journey. And Matthew 21 says this, And whosoever, this is the chief cornerstone we're talking about, he was a stone of stumbling to many, a rock of offense, disallowed of men. But he is the chief cornerstone. Matthew 21, 44 says, And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Let's look at the spiritual house that's being built here. That was the cornerstone. This chief cornerstone is the is the foundation of the spiritual house that God is building. First we notice, we want to mention, it talks about living stones. So not only is the chief cornerstone a living stone, it's alive. Also, the other stones, which are a picture of God's children, are living stones. You know, Peter was a fisherman, not a house builder. Somebody should have told him that stones don't live. But these do. These stones live. Too often, we're too stony, aren't we? And we're not lively enough as God's children. 
But these stones, these Peters, these Petroses, they are alive. And they are knit together in love. And it's a growing thing. It's a growing. They are built up. And we could turn to Ephesians 4 there, but we're not going to. It's, Ephesians 4 is a beautiful picture of the church, maybe in the larger sense of it. But it's also a beautiful picture of a local congregation that is being ministered to, that is growing up, that is growing into maturity spiritually. And this house, this spiritual house that is growing, that is alive and growing, it grows in numbers. Yes, it does. But it also grows in maturity and in grace. So let's go down here to verse 9. It's a growing house. We see here, first of all, that it's a chosen generation. It's a chosen generation. This is a description of this spiritual house. A chosen generation. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, speaking of Israel... These are beautiful words, but this is what God said regarding Israel as a nation. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Now I just want to ask you, is it a privilege to be chosen? It is. It's a tremendous privilege. I marvel over those words there in Deuteronomy 7. And God is saying, I chose to put my love on you. I chose you. I ha- All these other people were up on the earth, but I chose you to be my people. That's a privilege. <clears throat> Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, According as he, God the Father, hath chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, we are chosen in Jesus Christ. And I want to try to just real briefly speak about this election or chosen. Because Peter does talk about it. And it has been confusing for me in the past. I'm not saying I have it all figured out. But I'm just going to give you a little simple illustration. You know the verse in Matthew 22 verse 14. It says this. Jesus has a parable there, I believe. And at the end of that parable, I think he says it twice. But you find this little phrase there. And it says, for many are called... But few are chosen. And I scratched my head for years. Not, and I'm not trying to say I understand it fully now. But what does that mean? Many are called, but few are chosen. Chosen. To be chosen. Now, I believe that this call goes out. Many are called. The call goes out. Uh, Whosoever will may come. And when anyone... Repents When anyone hears the word, repents and believes the gospel, they enter into that chosen. But the call goes out. Many are called. The call goes out as, as the word of God goes out, as the gospel goes out. And we should remember that when we're preaching the gospel or sharing the gospel with others. The call is going out. And people can hear that call coming through God's word by his spirit. But the call goes out. And in order to be part of the chosen, you respond to the call. If you don't respond to the call, you don't enter into the chosen. That's how you, it's tied together. Let me illustrate this in my own limited way. Okay, <clears throat> let's say a young man asks to marry a young lady. So he presents this call. He asks to marry this young lady. There's the call. If she says yes, she's the chosen one, right? If she says no, she's not. In that situation, do you understand my illustration? If she says yes, then she is chosen. And so many are called. The gospel goes out, but few are chosen. Few respond to that. Few reach out and receive that blessing by faith. And that's how we enter into the chosen. 
And that's how we remain there. The call of the gospel goes out. If, they, if we are part of that chosen, we believe, the Bible teaches, that if we fall into sin and unbelief or walk away from God, we, can, we are no longer part of that chosen. Israel was chosen in Deuteronomy 7, but they lost their privileges in the Old Testament. They, fa- they faced tremendous judgments, and they eventually lost the inheritance in the land of Canaan. Because of unbelief, because they stumbled over the stumbling stone, because they failed to submit and surrender their hearts in faith, repentance and faith to God. The church is a chosen generation. We are chosen. God eternally purposed to have a people. Now, if we want to enter into that, we must repent and believe the gospel. And then we enter into the chosen if we are in Jesus Christ. Okay, we're called a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, we see the lineage of the priesthood passing through Levi, from Levi down through Aaron and his sons. We see the lineage of kingship uh, coming from the tribe of Judah passing down through uh, those kings. But in Jesus Christ, they come together. In Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. We have a royal priesthood. We have the lineage of the kingship and the lineage of the priesthood coming together into one. And in <clears throat> Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, uh, we'll just read that briefly. Revelations 1, verse 4 through 8. <clears throat> A royal priesthood. That's what we're called. The church is called. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and called us, really, but he loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Kings and priests. I don't think I'm going to say a lot more to that. It's a blessing, but that's what we're called. As a, we're called a royal priesthood <clears throat> as the people of God. And holy nation, a holy priesthood, it says in verse 5. A nation is a race of people. We talked about this yesterday. We tried to look at God's call Upon his people to holiness. I'm not going to go back in that today, but it's a holy priesthood. It's a holy nation, a nation that is set apart to God. Not just set apart from sin, but set apart to God. And then it says it's a peculiar people. Peculiar means acquisition or possession. You know, my wife is a, she is my wife. She's a peculiar person to me. She is my wife. I only have one. I'm blessed with her. In her life. But the picture of a peculiar people in vines, it means an obtaining. Webster says it's one's own property, exclusive property. The word indicates ownership. And this, God is saying to the church that you are a peculiar people. You are my people. God has purposed to have a people unto himself. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus Christ gave himself for us. That he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. My heart in this today is that we would understand the heart of God to have a people 
to have a corporate expression of his salvation, a corporate expression of, of living out the gospel and its eternal truths. Now, I'd like for you to turn to Isaiah 43. I'd like to look at this, a peculiar people. Isaiah 43, we want to read 21 and 22. Isaiah 43. A peculiar people. God speaking here, and I know this is talking in the context of Israel. Verse 21. This people have I formed for myself. This people have I formed for myself. It's a peculiar people. They shall show forth my praise. Verse 22 is kind of a heartbreaking verse. God says, this people I formed for myself. Verse 22 says, but thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. You've been weary of me. I formed you. I made you peculiar to myself, but you were weary of me. Interesting picture. So God is building this spiritual house. It says here to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. That's the purpose of this spiritual house. We see it here in verse 5. And back in 1 Peter, I'm sorry. 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2 verse 5 it says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So he's building this spiritual house. He's working and he has this cornerstone that's alive and, and that it's this lively stones being put together. And his, he's working there, building this spiritual house that they would offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God or pleasing to God. <clears throat> Let's look at a few of these spiritual sacrifices. There's the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15 says, By Jesus Christ, therefore... Let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that, the, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. There's a sacrifice of praise. We can offer that. And God's, uh, in, from this spiritual house, He's looking for sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices. And one of them is a sacrifice of praise being offered up. We could talk about worship. There's a spiritual sacrifice of a broken spirit. Psalm 51, 17 says this, that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Have you ever offered that sacrifice to God? Have I ever offered him that sacrifice? The sacrifice of a broken spirit. That's a spiritual sacrifice. Another one is the sacrifice of prayer. This is a spiritual sacrifice. Psalm 141, verse 2, I'll just read it. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, in the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. A spiritual sacrifice, prayer. Let it, my prayers ascend up into your presence. Like incense. And the lifting up of my hands, like the evening sacrifice. Sacrifice of praise. We can look at Micah chapter 6. What does the Lord your God require of you? It's an amazing passage there. We're thinking of offering up spiritual sacrifices as God's people. 
I can read you those verses. They're a blessing to my heart. When I think of this subject of spiritual sacrifices, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to do righteousness, to live righteously, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? There's no one here that can't do that by the grace of God. Spiritual sacrifices. And we heard this verse this morning already. Romans 12, 1, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So this, this spiritual house is to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. Our bodies. <clears throat> now we need to wrap this up. God is building this spiritual house as verse, the verse here, verse 10 tells us, I'm sorry, verse 9 that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that word, show forth the praises, that simply means the virtues or the moral excellence. God is building this spiritual house that it would show forth the moral excellency, the moral glory of our God who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's a lot we could say on that. We, in John 1 verse 18, it says in the Gospel of John that no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Jesus came and revealed to us the Father. In Ephesians 3, we see that the church is called to show to the principalities and powers the manifold wisdom of God. To show forth to the world in our generation, in every generation, the moral excellence, the virtue, the praise of our God. And this is the eternal purpose of the church. Now I understand, I understand we're not going to get it perfect. There, there are needs and we see needs in our lives and we, we, we are needy people as we live together. But my heart today is just to lift this up and try to encourage our hearts to get a little bit of a glimpse of the eternal purpose and heart of God. That the church would show forth his moral excellencies, his moral glory, his virtue, and his praise in every generation. And so as you think of this spiritual house that's being built, you think of the life of God just filling this. You think of love, the love of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God dwelling in this church and being shown forth in every generation. The moral excellence of God. His life is in us. His wisdom, His grace, His holiness. And it just, the, it's showing forth to the world the praises of our God. And may God do that in each of our own communities. You say, oh, that's pretty idealistic. I understand it is that. But I think God's grace is available. And I just want to encourage you young people that God has a burden in a heart for His church. It is part of His eternal purpose. Jesus Christ is coming back for a bride. A church. And may our congregation somehow, in our limited way, may we endeavor to be surrendered to him and filled with his grace so that our lives individually and corporately can show forth his virtue, his praise, his glory 
God bless you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we think of these truths this afternoon. We thank you for a solid, living cornerstone. And we thank you for your eternal purposes. And Father, we just ask that you would take our lives, our feeble lives, infuse them with your life, your spirit, your grace, and your love, that we could more clearly and more perfectly show forth to this generation your moral excellence and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.